Criminals love borders. They just love them. You know, borders and operating around a border is, you know, how criminals do their business. It's to do with drug smuggling. It's to do with people trafficking. Um, and it is to do with criminality in a wide scale. The guards are chasing someone and they're about to go into the north. They can radio ahead. But the fact is, there may not be somebody on the other side ready to take over. You know, there's 300 miles of border. There's dozens of crossings. Think about how difficult that area is to police. I'm Nicola Talent. And you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. The tag bandit country was long used for what was once described as lawless South Armagh. But times have changed and now the towns situated along the border region of Ireland want to put the dark days of the past behind them and be recognised as thriving modern communities. So how do we move forward while recognising the potentially incendiary political and constitutional proposals to police regions that border Garda Síochána and PSNI territories? Today, I'm talking to Belfast Telegraph crime correspondent Alison Morris about the landmines that await the advent of change in places once policed like war zones. We talk policing in South Armagh, the crime gangs who are gaining from politics and the controversy of cross-border hot pursuit. This is Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. Do you have any idea, Alison, what the origins of the famous tag bandit country is? It actually dates back to 1974 and it was the then um, Northern Ireland Secretary Mervyn Rees who called South Armagh bandit country. He said it was lawless and impossible to police and it stuck and um, we know then there's a famous book by that name which looked into the activities of the provisional area along the border but it's something that the people who live there have tried very hard to shake off over the years. You know, I think that in a modern society where they're trying to create a new and peaceful, prosperous society that they believe it puts people off visiting there, it puts tourists off, you know, it puts investment off. And I think that, you know, it's, they feel it labels them all as sort of thieves and smugglers. And It and does bandits. sound bad, like it does. And I have to say, I have used it myself in recent years and I am going to stop now because, you know what I mean, you do have to develop all the time with your language you're using, don't you? And the problem is it was good for a headline. It sounded snappy, yeah. it was very tabloid and it was of its time. But yeah. I mean, we're living in a different dispensation now and we're trying to create a peaceful society and, and the fact is that you know it's I suppose it's labelling an entire mm. population of you know entire county is is as being somehow dishonest and you know you have to take that in mind so they really do not like it. Yeah no I can't blame them I think we'll we'll uh, draw a line in the sand here with <laughs> Banda country and um, but anyway South Armagh and it has been a very difficult area to police. I mean, we can still agree with that. 1974 is the year I was born when he said that. But it is a difficult area to police and it's difficult because that border is in place. It's got a massive history to it and I I find it fascinating, the history Mm. to it as well. So when the British Army first came here at the very start of the Troubles in the 60s, they knew they needed a base in Cross McGlenn because it was so close to the border and the IRA were obviously using the border to their advantage. And so they took... Part of Cross McGlen Rangers GAA pitch off them. They confiscated it from them. They built a huge um, army base and watchtowers. 
and they only access that army base by helicopter. So all goods and supplies and, and personnel who were being brought in and out of the army base only went in by army helicopter. And you can see if there's old footage and pictures where if um, Cross McGlenn Rangers were playing football on a Saturday where the match had to stop because the ball used to blow all over the place with the, the helicopter right. flying so low above it. Um, and, you know, the, they lived in, in the shadow of those watchtowers and that sort of ugly installation. Mm. I think it was around 2005 um, when the army finally left here at the, at the end of Operation Banner. That army base was dismantled and that land was given back to the GAA club who managed to then for the first time, you know, since the, the early 70s have a full-size pitch to play on mm. and they were able to build a new clubhouse and built new facilities. But the police station still remains and the police station is a relic of the past. You know, if you've ever driven through Cross McGlenn, you can't help but see it. It is a monstrosity of a, a structure. It's still heavily fortified. You know, it's it's built out of the... There was a mortar attack at one stage and the entire police station was, was completely and utterly floored and that. So it was rebuilt and it was rebuilt almost to withstand a nuclear attack. It is like a bunker. It has, it you is, know, yeah. three and four foot, you know, thick concrete walls. Um, it's the most foreboding building that you could see. And it's just like... It is like a nuclear bunker or something like that. There's a kind of a steel door at the front there of it. There is. It's all car and it's full of, there's still a, there's still a, a sort of Sanger type watchtower on it. It's completely surrounded. It drew drive through it and you would think that the troubles were still, you know, mm. going full, fully, full blast because that is not the kind of police station that you associate with peacetime policing. I have never been inside it, but I believe inside it's as bad as it is on the outside. It's, you know, um, it's still at this point in time that the policing of South Armagh and Cross McGlenn is still not normalised. Mm. So the police officers who are stationed there work in shifts of four days and for those four days they live and work in the station so there's sleeping facilities from them so they are bussed in date, they don't drive in and out of their own cars and that's a hangover from the, the past and the security situation and they stay there um, and I believe it's not the, the most pleasant place to be. So, Sounds like a prison. Yeah, so I don't even, you know, usually when we had um, the demilitarisation of policing and police stations being removed in the past there was controversy over it and the policing board, the police federation might have argued against it but in this case I think that everyone is in agreement that that station needs to go. It's not fit right. for purpose and it needs and to be dismantled. does it need to be levelled yet or else is there an opportunity to make something out of it, like to, you know, to have it as a reminder of the bad old days kind of thing? Some people have said that there should be a new police station but one built in a more sort of community manner. The recent police in South Armagh Police and Review said that that probably wasn't financially viable at this point in time, that there is a police station in Hamilton, which is only 10 miles away, that it could service mm. the whole of South Armagh and it should be taken down. And I think generally in that community, the thought is it should be given back to the community. In past, police stations have been turned into maybe social housing in places where there's a high demand for that or into youth facilities or into sporting facilities. So there's scope to turn it into something where it would be much more useful than it, it currently <laughs> is. It's, I mean, Cross McLean is the loveliest wee village yeah. if you ever drive through it. It's gorgeous. So, I mean, I'm sure once it was floored and gone and knocked down, that land... Um, carries quite a, there's quite a big footprint there that I'm sure could be put to use for something you know yeah. even if it's investment and to attract a new business and you know or to build build new housing I don't know um, that'll be for the people who live there to decide but I mean I think that we're all in they were all in, in agreement that the thing needs to go mm -hmm. with some monstrosity yeah. Absolutely so it is part of and, and the station itself is part of this policing report that we're going to talk about and try and work out 
we're going to work out between us what has to happen. It just what has to happen. could have been so much easier. <laughs> Ridiculous. How many pages? 170. <laughs> we could have done this in 10 minutes. Yeah. But um, so that has been recommended that that police station is certainly decommissioned or whatever, closed down, maybe knocked. I had I'd got wind earlier on this year that the, there was going to be a recommendation to flow the station that was in the South Armagh Review. The 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 history to the review itself is really interesting. So, mm. you know, this this heavily fortified station where people, you know, the police officers still don't drive in and out their own cars, they're still bust in, they still have to stay there for four days and come out. It's still treated as if there's still a conflict going on which does not exist. You know, it's policing and, and you know, a conflict that is non-existent. Um, but the, the history of the review was on Christmas Day 2009 and I can assure you I was not on social media on Christmas Day mm. 2009. At this stage I was probably in the second bottle of, of of, uh, Prosecco or something else but on Christmas Day 2019 sorry 19, yes, you actually lost 10 years, years you had that many bottles on Christmas Prosecco. Day 2019 <laughs> the Chief Constable visited Cosmo Glen Station got a picture taken with the, the officers who were stationed there that day but for some reason they had decided to carry their um, their rifles, these automatic rifle rifles mm. that had what are called kite sights, which are actually night vision sights, even though it was daytime, which makes them even look even more sort of um, foreboding, I suppose. And there was outrage because people said this was an image of police in the past. There was really no need for these heavily armed officers carrying automatic rifles, especially not on a Christmas day. It was not a festive image. It was like a happy Christmas tweet. It was, he... From your friend, the, the chief, officers. The chief constable wasn't that long in position, so I'm, I'm going to give him a Bible and say maybe he didn't understand the sensitivities of it. The police officers and the commander down there, I'm sure would have, so how, nobody said to him this may not be the best idea, I'm not sure. But he stood there, you know, the picture, if anyone wants to Google it, is there, it's online, and you will see. And this was on, you know, a Christmas day. It was visiting these, you know, the officers were crossing the and this picture. It was a PR disaster for the chief constable. And as a result of that, he had to apologise to the people of Cross McGlen and the local politicians. And he agreed that he would carry out a review of policing in that area. So that was released um, earlier this month. And that was as a result of that picture, which was very misjudged, let's face it. So there was 50 findings or recommendations in this report. So we won't go through all 50 of them. But the one maybe that we might be most interested in, um, and it's probably most relevant, is this idea of people, criminals, organised crime groups, using the border to escape it is, and we call this Hot Pursuit, which I didn't actually realise I liked so much. I think that my first book might be called Hot Pursuit. You like I don't that know. word, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, it, it, well, basically there's an agreement in it's all... Kind of cartoony, all, yes, <laughs> There's an agreement in, in almost all other European countries. There is currently an agreement for Hot Pursuit, so law enforcement can cross a border if they are chasing a criminal mm. at that stage, so they can cross into another jurisdiction. It doesn't mean they can go, you know, 30, 40, 50 miles into the jurisdiction, but they can cross over until such a time as law enforcement from that jurisdiction can take over the chase. Mm. And that is an agreement that has been in place for decades. It never applied to this part of the world, even when Northern Ireland was part of the European Union, despite this being a European-wide agreement. And there's political sensitivities for that. So that was because at that stage, I'm assuming that, you know, 
Unionists would have objected to the guards being in the north. And I'm not sure that anyone who lives along the border in the south particularly want the PSNI crossing over into their jurisdiction either. There but would it, have been fears, I presume, yeah. that they'd have done more than just what they were supposed to do, which is follow the... Yeah, as, as a journalist, I, you know, and as a crime reporter, I can say already, you know, it, it sets my antenna off with in terms of the problems that you're going to have. So the PSNI are routinely armed. So every single officer carries a firearm, they carry a sidearm. The guards, as we know, are not. So what happens if, you know, a member of the PSNI discharges a weapon in the south? Who's responsible for that? You know, in the north, if there's anything that happens in relation to the PSNI, it's investigated by the police ombudsman. Who would investigate it if the PSNI were in a different jurisdiction? Mm -hmm. They're answerable to the policing board. Who would they be answerable to if they were operating in the south? And vice versa, if you turn that around, say the guards chased someone into Northern Ireland and were involved in a high-speed crash and somebody lost their life, who would be responsible for monitoring that behaviour? So you can see where it comes But what happens in Europe with that? In other European countries, there is basically just a legal agreement that they're allowed to cross in until someone else takes over. Um, and none of these sort of sensitivities, they're they ironed out to the point where if you're arrested in that jurisdiction, that is where you'll appear in court, you know, unless you need to be extradited. Other European countries have a much easier sort of, I suppose, way of dealing with this because they wouldn't have maybe the political sensitivities that we had in relation to policing. It's never been in the north. They do say there's good cooperation, there is. In most cases, you know, if the guards are chasing someone and they're about to go into the north, they can radio ahead, you know, a helicopter can be put up, they can be monitored until they can be stopped. But the fact is, those, especially if it's a very rural area, there may not be somebody on the other side ready to take over from that hot pursuit. So this was one of the things they wanted greater agreement on. Um, immediately, I think that that caused issues because the, the police in review, the guards were saying, well, nobody has actually came to us and spoke to us about this review. They ask us what we think about the hot pursuit. Maybe there will be an agreement somewhere down the line, but I can't see that happening in the immediate future. You know, that's one of the things where we have a real problem with the border. And like we talk about Brexit, you know, there was a lot of talk about putting a land border to check goods during Brexit, and it was it was agreed, I think, by everyone. It just can't be done. You know, there's 300 miles of border. There's dozens of crossings. So if it couldn't be done in terms of just checking customs arrangements on a lorry full of goods, how on earth, you know, think about how difficult that area is to police, um, especially in areas where there wouldn't really be a big concentration of PSNI in the first place or where there would be traditionally the local community wouldn't necessarily be that welcome and it would be pretty hostile towards the police. So you can see how there's there's massive difficulties and that is clearly exploited. Criminals love borders, they just love them, you know, um, and that's always been the case. You know, borders and operating around a border is, you know, how criminals do their business because they can jump from one jurisdiction to another. Of course. And, and that's always, yeah. And that confuses investigations and it makes things more difficult and obviously, you know, warrants have to be sought and there has to be this sort of cooperation and um, all the rest of it. But at the same time, if we are moving on and we are going to move on, surely we have to come to a point where we have to start trying to look at the likes of, you know, the French, how they do it, how they're, you know, relating to their neighbours. Can we do the same? Is it possible that we can get over these sort of political problems and the mindset and that we can actually put fighting crime first? Because really, because of all that, it's the criminals that are winning. It is, and it's not criminality in the terms of what it would have been. So the border would have been exploited in the past in terms of the IRA could have carried out attacks in the north and went to the south. 
Um, it, you know, we know the difficulties with achieving European arrest warrants. You can't get a European arrest warrant just on suspicion. There has to be, you know, actual evidence. You yeah. can't go on a fishing expedition with a European arrest warrant. There has to be reason, reasons to extradite someone. Um, and so all that causes problems. This is not what's, what the problem with the border criminality is now. It's to do with drug smuggling. It's to do with people trafficking. Um, and it is to do with criminality in a wide scale. And we've seen that, I suppose, two of the most recent cases I can think of was the kidnapping of Kevin Lunny and what is going on with the Quinn International Holdings situation that involved a lot of cross-border criminality and the um, murder of Adrian Donahoe, yeah. which, again, we know that the, the only person, Aaron Brady, who's been convicted of that, had an address in Cross McGlenn, and they were carrying out robberies of credit unions in the south but living in the north, and so you can see how the border was being exploited there. So they're probably two of the most high-profile cases. I can and think I remember of. when he was murdered, going up to cover that story at the time, and they had very early on they realised that the gang had left the jurisdiction within minutes, and taking the route from Lordship Credit Union, uh, just literally up, it was something like I mean, probably took me six minutes because I was within the speed limit. These guys are going like the clappers and high-speed cars. They were over the border in minutes that night and he's lying dead I mean they hadn't even I don't think the ambulance had even been called or arrived and they're gone I mean that's how it is and the same on what I would call Quinn Mountain in Fermanagh um, I mean that you're driving along and Cross McGlenn and areas outside Cross McGlenn are the same and you're jumping along one road if you turn left, you're into the south. If you turn right, you're into the north. But you only know because your phone tells you. It's your a constant bleeping of your phone yeah. as it jumps in and out of different network providers. Apart from that, you have no idea whether you're north or south. There has been some distant Republican activity along that Fermanagh border, and we've seen that with you know devices that were left on Wattle Bridge um, in relation to the last couple of years. And a lot of times then it's, it's the guards that are left to investigate a lot of that because we know that there's jumping and for, back and forward across the border. But this is really about really serious organised crime mm. and organised criminality. That's not to say some of the people who are doing it were not previously involved in paramilitary groups, but they have just transferred those skills that they learned during their time in paramilitary groups over the organised criminality now, and it's very difficult. So as you put that that case of, of that murder, you know, with the credit union, if you let's use that as an example, what if the guards were in hot pursuit, if they had, have, you know, chased across the border, what was going to happen then once they disappeared? So you can see how it would be important to get an agreement. We know that there's difficulties, you know, and who they would be accountable to and all of that, but I think it's worth... You know, the justice ministers on both sides of the border sitting down, getting their heads together and coming up with some sort of solution to this. And what would have had to happen if they were in hot pursuit? Would they literally have to put the brakes on and stop Yeah, dead? as soon as they know they're yeah. in a different jurisdiction, they have to stop. And that's 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 just the case. You know, mm. they can't carry on into another jurisdiction. They have to phone ahead and say, we're chasing, you know, a grey mm-hmm. astral, whatever it is. You know, could Can you, you imagine somebody? having to do that as a police person, hot on the tail of somebody yeah. who had just murdered one of your colleagues, uh, you know, a father of two young children, and because of, of rules and regulations, you had to stop and let them drive off into the distance to freedom. Yeah. And, you know, in the same, we know that, you know, Kevin Lunney was kidnapped in the north, but, yeah. you know, he was, he was tortured and in the south and that's where the you know there's currently a trial ongoing in relation to that but that's taking place in the south so i mean you can see that the cross-border criminality it runs very deep you know it's it's very organized mm. um and it's very difficult i think to, to deal with when we're still in the mindset of the past you know where we're treating the two jurisdictions so separately mm-hmm. when i mean there's people's houses along that border and you know yeah. half their houses on one side and half their houses on the other that's what i was going to say to you because while we are looking at the phone to see which side we're on 
the criminals know damn well every corner of those roads. And the classic example of one that used the border in such a way was, of course, the famous Thomas Slab Murphy and his farmyard up in Hacksballs Cross. There were some of the outbuildings in the south, some in the north. I actually think that the house was supposed to straddle the border. There was one story I heard at one point, the Criminal Assets Bureau went up and raided it at one stage, and they always believed there was tunnels in under the house and all the rest of it, and they burst in, they thought, to surprise him, and he was gone, but there was a mug of tea on the table, and the steam was still rising out of it. And the seat was still hot, but there was no word no to be sign seen of, of Mr. Well, Mr. I mean, Mr. Murphy. And, and, you know, I've heard, you know, stories of people, you know, uh, at that stage it would have been the IEC calling to raid their house and them standing at the bottom end of the bottom field waving up at them, you know, and they can't come and couldn't come and get them. I mean, that's, at that stage that was, you know, being used in relation to our conflict, but you can imagine how difficult that is to police in a modern capacity as well, when crime is so much more sophisticated now than it was then. I mean, then you might have been knocking a load of diesel or a load of cattle back and forward across the border, mm. but now we're talking about, you know, yeah. weapons, we're talking about drugs, we're talking about people trafficking, which is mm. a really big problem as well. It's 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 much more concerning now, and it is definitely much more urgent now, really, in a way, to... Um, the Kevin Lunny situation and the Quinn situation, a lot of that criminality has used... Um, old smuggling routes that lie up around that border mountain that apparently certain individuals would know. These are old, old smuggling. Like, how long is smuggling going on since Ireland was divided? Well, it is. You're protecting anywhere and you're going to, it's, mm. it's you know, that's what the, the smugglers are going to take advantage of. The only stuff I, you know, did quite a lot of work on that at the time. Um, I mean, for anyone who wasn't familiar with it, we know that was he was kidnapped in September 2019. But it was a horrific situation. You know, he was kidnapped, um, taken out of his car, threw into the back of another car. He was driven across the border. He was put in the back of what he thinks was a, a trailer or, you know, a horse box. And he was tortured, and including he had the letters QIH carved with a, a, a knife into his chest. He mm. was told as a reminder so he wouldn't forget what had happened. This was all, as we know, the fallout in relation to the the, the fall of Sean Quinn, you know, once, uh, you know, Ireland's richest man, and, and that downfall and the fact that there was people along that border who were so fiercely loyal to him that they, they you know, they seen it as their duty, I suppose, to try and avenge him in this way. Um, and that had been going on for quite a long time, long before the kidnapping, you know, that had been back and forward across the border involving police in both jurisdictions. Mm. Um, and you can see then in relation to that how the border could be exploited and, you know, when it comes to that kind of activity. Um, and that was probably one of the most sort of, I think, most recent and most horrific examples of criminals exploiting the border for their own aim. You talked about people trafficking and obviously the case in Essex where those people... 34, was it? from 34 people working? And that again involved, the back of that truck. involved, you know, um, lorry drivers from both sides of the border who were working and, you know, working with each other. You know, you had people from Armagh, you had people from Newton Butler, you had people who were connected to the south. It involved, that court case involved so many European arrest warrants to try and get everyone in the same jurisdiction. And these were people who we know had been previously involved in smuggling, whether they were smuggling alcohol or cigarettes or all sorts of other things. And they just used the routes that they had established in relation to smuggling. And they transferred that to people because people was a commodity that was making them more money than those other examples were. And there's also less risk because in cases where you were stopped, they were saying, oh, I didn't know they were in the back. They must have jumped in when I was in getting mm-hmm. something to eat. And all the authorities were doing was taking the people out and sent them on their way. So <clears throat> there was much less risk involved in the people trafficking. I think that's why so many of them were involved in that. And 
a lot of them were also transporting drugs and weapons and whatever the hell would pay the money. They didn't care what was in the back of the van. Well, we know that, you know, if you use the same smuggling routes, you use them in relation to anything that will make you money and they don't care what will make the money. Mm. So you're just looking at what will make me the most money. And if you can, I mean, at, at that stage when I was investigating those um, those deaths in Essex and the link to that, and I think a lot of people were shocked at how, how closely Ireland, North and South were linked to that, that people trafficking routes and speaking to legitimate hauliers who said they'd been raising these issues for many years. So people who wouldn't necessarily qualify for a haulier's licence in Ireland because there's so many hoops you have to jump through. They were going to Bulgaria where, you know, it's a burn envelope job to get yourself a haulier's licence within 24 hours. Um, you notice a lot of the, the lorries that were involved in the Essex deaths had um, Bulgarian licence plates on them, even mm. though the people weren't from there. So they were getting their licence from there. That meant that they were able to travel in and out of Europe. They were undercutting legitimate businesses because to go to Europe to pick up whatever it was they were smuggling, be that people, be that drugs, be that whatever, they obviously needed a reason to drive there. So if you were charged someone, um, and I'm not sure how much it costs to haul something, but say it cost £20,000 to bring a load to Europe, they mm. were offering to do it for something ridiculous like five and undercutting legitimate businesses because to them they didn't need to make any money doing that because mm-hmm. their money was being made on the return journey. They just needed a reason to be going. And that had been going on for a long time. They had been raising this with the authorities and nothing had been done about it and it wasn't until it took that awful tragedy before people woke up and said, no, hold on a wee second, what exactly is going on here and how many people are involved in it? And you could tear down that court case if the families, you know, those people were paying £2,500 each to be smuggled out. Well, then the more you could get in the back of the lorry, the more money you could make. And that was when they were just packing people in and that's obviously the lack of oxygen was well led to all those people being killed you know how many times had they done it before yeah. and hadn't been caught successfully yeah. exactly and that's always the way um is that the most important issue on the board of the hot pursuit what else can we be doing? There's the hot pursuit and then one of the other really controversial aspects of that report is they talked um at that stage about joint policing and in terms of how they could help each other police the border in a more cooperative way. Currently, there is really good cooperation between the police and the guards, and we know that. I mean, the Guard Commissioner is a, a former member of the PSNI. Um, you know, a lot of the, the most high-flying members of the PSNI seem to be leaving in their droves to go and work. Um, That's work because they're the, getting paid a fortune, the, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> work for the guards, I think, just this week. They lost their head of HR, and I think she's heading, she's heading south. People like Paula Hillman have already head, headed south. Um, so, you know, there is really close cooperation and a close link there. But there's a difference between parallel policing, which is what we currently have, and joint policing. And that was when the unionists in Tenney went off and they said, you're trying to create an all-island police force. What is this all about? Um, I think, you know, on the face of it, it makes sense if you have a very rural community and maybe you have a guard station close to the border, but you don't have a PSNI station close to the border, that you might try and use those resources and vice versa, you know, in, in terms of that. But again, you know, we have hangovers from our political situation where people are just automatically suspicious of any change to, to those arrangements. And like, how do you start to change that mindset? How do you go about that? I mean, you know... It's so antiquated to think that the police and and the guardy can be, you know, less than five kilometres apart but not actually work together because people might be politically offended. It's ridiculous. I mean, 
the police, the PSNI, the NCA in the UK, the gendarmerie in the Netherlands, the police, the Spanish, they're all working together constantly and, and, and sharing intelligence. And that is what makes a difference now because the criminals don't stay on one side of the border or the other. They're, they're all... And they actually play sometimes in each other's jurisdiction. Um, I, you know, during Oktoberfest in Germany, whatever, you know, there's different weeks that different Europeans arrive. And I know that the Italian police come and police their own citizens during that time and yeah. vice versa. And we've seen that during other, you know, big sort of World Cup tournaments and things like that, where they have, have seconded police officers in that are basically used because there might be language difficulties. So they're basically policing their own citizens, mm-hmm. but in a different a different jurisdiction. Um, you know, we have had situations where we have had mutual assistance officers who have been sent from England to police here during parade disputes and conflict, and that was that was fine. You know, I remember speaking to, you know, some big police officer from Leeds who was standing at a riot and they would feel love in his life, thinking it was great. And I'm thinking, why are you thinking this is... But maybe it looks good in their CV or something, I don't know. <laughs> maybe it helps for the promotion. But when it comes to then chasing, you know, when we're the people who are closest to us, you know, on our, our land border, it's difficult. Like, there's, there's hangovers from police in here. The changeover from... The RUC to the PSNI is actually 100, is, is 20, it's the 20th anniversary of that this November. And that was essential to the police. The RUC, you know, it was predominantly Protestant unionist force. People did not see it as being reflective of society. That changeover was supposed to be our big change in policing. This South Armagh report has been said as, you know, the biggest change in policing since the Patton report, whether or not that's true. A lot of it is really normal day-to-day policing and you people would be shocked if they realised that that wasn't what people in South Armagh are getting you know so if you have you know a domestic call out in South Armagh they're coming out in armoured unmarked you know cars with guys carrying rifles as if they're about to you know invade a small nation mm-hmm. um, and the policing review a lot of that was about taking that away demilitarising that getting rid of that so the people seen it as normal policing and not you know, is this security, troubles, time, policing. So a lot of it is just things that you imagine are common sense and already happen elsewhere, just haven't happened there. But then, you know, when you look at the, the sort of context of, of that in terms of, of then changing it, that we have closer cooperation with the guards, it set off the unionists here. But also I spoke to someone when I was covering this earlier earlier in the month and mentioned to them about it and they went, well, we don't want those boys down here either. So, I mean, I think there's suspicion as to what the PSNI will be yeah. doing hawking around at the other side of the border either. It's not a one-way thing. No, definitely There's suspicion not. on both sides. Yeah, there is. And, you know, there is. And it, it will be a slow thing. So what happens now as regards the recommendations in this report? A lot of the recommendations will just be carried through because, as I said, they're police and operations that go and place elsewhere. It'll probably be five years time before they manage to get agreement to knock down Cross Mogan Police Station that will happen at that point all police in South Armagh will go to Newton Hamilton they're talking about changing the name of that to South Armagh PSNI Station um, there was a recommendation that there might be Irish language signage outside that PSNI station. That didn't go down too well with the unionist members of the policing board either. Um, but that will happen, and I think that that will happen within the next few years. Already, I know that the, there's been changes to hearth. They're patrolled. They've been told that they, you know, on patrols they should be out in you know, so the delivery, you know, PSNI logoed cars and not the old armoured unmarked vehicles. They should be in their PSNI uniforms and the new uniform and the new brand and everything should be try to keep as normal as possible. That'll all happen quite quickly. There's resistance to that 
I think within some of those older elements of the PSNI who may have been there from the RUC days, it's very difficult for them to consider, you know, to think that they're going to be like Bobby's on patrol and cross McGlenn. It's just not going to happen. I I believe that they've been told that they can, if they want, can be relocated elsewhere. There's a big parachute there for them, wouldn't there be? So they're going to have to, I think that they're probably going to have to relocate some of those older officers elsewhere because they're just not going to be able to, to police in the new regime. Some will, some won't. And then they'll they'll bring over probably a lot of more of the younger sort of newer recruits who are quite happy to police in that in that kind of way. So that'll happen soon. In terms of North South relations, I do think that there's pretty good, probably the best relationship there's ever been at the minute between the the PSNI and, and the guards. That'll continue. But I do think that we need to have a serious conversation that requires legislation. If you want to change hot pursuit and if you want to be able to go in to each other's jurisdiction. I mean, there could be a, a mileage put on that. They could say you can go five miles into the jurisdiction, you can go 10 miles, and after that, that's given people plenty of time for someone to come and take up the, the chase or take up the pursuit. But that requires the two justice departments to sit down. We're coming up to an election next May, so it's near the end of this current phase of government. So that's not going to happen during, I don't think, during this phase of government, maybe in the next. But, I mean, I think is is you know it's a mature thing to consider and a mature thing to do. Uh, unfortunately, politics in this part of the world isn't always very mature. Well, and it just seems to take forever to move legislation through. It's like a trundling wheel, isn't it, trying to bring it around? But I do know that the guards, the reaction to this report was, you know, raising a few little red flags about things like that, about about the, the legislation um, and the rest of it. Tell me this much, Um what is a career like in the PSNI and who who are these young recruits? Where are they coming from? Very early on day. I mean, I was a journalist when the, the RUC turned to the PSNI and I remember working that weekend and at midnight they went in and took off all the old RUC signs off the station and the next morning everyone arrived in their new... PSNI uniforms. I actually remember doing a tour of, of McGilligan Prison a few years later and the prisoners were in this big shed out the back working and they were steam cleaning and pressing these green shirts um, and I had said to the, the prison guard what are they doing and he says oh they're the RUC uniforms they're washing them and pressing them sending them to Romania to be used over there and I thought my god there's some boys running around Romania dressed like RUC men that's mad but that's where they went that's apparently where the old uniforms went um, after they'd been cleaned by the, the prisoners of McGilligan um, but that was it was a big momentous occasion and at that point in time I suppose like everything had happened right after the peace process we were all a bit euphoric and everybody thought this is going to be amazing and things going to be brilliant, plain sailing. 20 years on, you can see that that was not necessarily the case and things can't change as quickly as we'd like. I do remember at that point in time speaking to a former IRA ex-prisoner and saying to him, you know, when it took until 2005 until Sinn Féin backed the police and structures and said they joined the police and board, so a bit later. And at that stage, he said, you know, I have no problem with my, would have no problem with my children joining the PSNI now. I, you know, would love to see the day that, you know, we would have, mm. you know, someone in my family who could be able to police in a proper way and not the way that we were policed in the past. That never happened. And that person's children currently work in government. And that will tell you where yes. they decided that they could make the most change to what was going on. Um, what happened was a lot of people from the nationalist community did join in those early days. Then they realised that the sort of distant Republican threat that, it, that occurred. So you had Pater Heffron, who was a 
played for the, the PSNI's GA team. He was Irish speaking. He was wheeled out almost like the poster boy for, you know, the new PSNI. He went and spoke at police and events and spoke in Irish. And I think that that made him a target, right. to be honest. And he was then targeted by Oglana Hearn, who put a bomb under his car. Um, that exploded. He survived, but he lost his leg in, in that attack and he never served as a police officer again and he was very badly injured. Then you had Ronan Kerr, who was also a police officer from the nationalist community. He had grandparents who lived in West Belfast, not far from where I was from. Again, targeted an undercar bomb. He was killed as well. And so you can see even right recently there was a, a firebomb in Dungiven at the car of a part-time police officer. Um, again, Catholic officers, easier targets, so... We don't know whether, I mean, I suppose there's two elements to this. They're easier to target because they're easier to get targeting information off because, you know, somebody might say, oh, our such and such as kid joined the cops and then that information feeds back. But also there's propaganda in terms of the dissidents and targeting nationalist police recruits because it prevents other people from doing it. And then they can say that force is not representative of our community and the force isn't representative of the community because they're targeting people who join it or from the community. So there's a cycle. Yeah. So there's always a cycle there. I mean, Catholic PSNI officers, if they come from staunchly Republican communities, can't stay there. They can't stay in their own home. They have to leave and go somewhere else. They're then usually stationed elsewhere. They're usually stationed. So if they come from Belfast, they'll maybe be sent down to Enniskillen or somewhere like that. So there's less chance of someone recognising them when they're at work. Is that like um, totally normal? Yeah, that, that? yeah. Um, they're given a list of places where they can and can't socialise. So maybe if they're a member of a gilly club, they won't be able to do that anymore. That was the reason why the PSNI set up the GAA club. And that was to try and give those people, you know, the people who set that up, the Catholic officers, to try and give them that sort of sense of community. But... There isn't even enough um, people to play on that anymore. I mean, I did a story last year about how it's going to wind up because they can't even field a full team because there's so few people who are joining. So that's after 20 years of the promises. And, you know, are they continuing to work to try and encourage the nationalist community in and to try and... Last year there was a, a I suppose it was significant, and that Michelle O'Neill and Jerry Kelly from Sinn Féin showed up at a police recruitment event, and that was an attempt... I think, to try and get more Catholics to join the PSNI. Then you have setbacks. So we go like two steps, you know, two steps forward, one step back. So we're never always going at the speed that we should have. So then um, during the summer, we had an incident in the Armour Road where, you know, the Armour bookmakers attack, where there was people killed by loyalists there. The families were trying to have a bit of commemoration. Two PSNI officers, who were told were rookie officers, pulled up, said, just as a breach of COVID regulations, but if an RG barge and they end up arresting a guy who was shot and injured during that attack and narrowly survived, everything is now filmed on mobile phones. Mm. That was all put online and obviously there was outrage. They were like, how has anything changed? You know, why are they being targeted? Ironically, the officers, one of the officers who um, arrested him was actually from the South. He'd actually travelled, he'd, he'd moved from the South to join the PSNI. Um, you know, so it wasn't as if these were, you know, that he had some officers who yeah. were, yeah. But at the same time, those sort of sensitivities have to, you had to be taken in mind all the time, where that can be, I suppose, used to, to bring us a step back. I don't think, I mean, I certainly wouldn't want one of my children going and joining. I think, you know, the the sort of starter salary for a rookie sort of pacing officers by £32,000. I mean, I wouldn't want my children looking under the car for a bomb every day for that kind of money and putting their lives at risk 
for that. Um, I, I think, think that's it's very money though than yeah. the starter salary for the Garda Shikona from Yeah, I think, it I think it's, it's, there used to be, you know, you said they had big yeah. danger money and so you're being paid significant amounts of money. That wouldn't be the case. I mean, they can raise up quite quickly and it can be a very well paid job, but at the same time too, you're giving up everything, you know, and as well as that, I mean, there, there are Catholic officers whose families have been targeted. I mean, pipe bombs left outside the homes of their elderly parents' house and, and other things. So, you know, you can see what the difficulties are. I'm not sure that we're just there yet. You know, I think that we have a wee bit to go. The distance threat is significantly reduced. But you always have to remember, you know, it doesn't take there to be thousands of people in a paramilitary organisation. It can take, you know, a handful of people, five people, and one with a gun, or it can take, you know, one undercar bomb, and that can set everything back straight to straight to where it was again. So mm-hmm. they're always having to be very cautious of that. It's difficult. I think right now, I think it's sitting around thirty two percent of officers come from the nationalist community. That reduces again when you go to the civilian staff. You know, there's even even less there. So there are steps to try yeah. and recruit people, but they've also got an issue with women as well. I mean, they're losing most of their high-profile women, and so you know that you're trying to build a police services reflective of they're society. They're losing them down to the south to they're get the bigger the guards, jobs. That's where they're all going. They're going to the guards. Yeah, and Barbara Gray, who is, you know, yeah. I think that we all had thought that she would be the chief constable one day. She's off. She went to the Met, and she's over yeah. there working. And Paula Hillman, who was, you know, one of the most a very impressive um, police officers, currently down in the guards. You know, we can see that they're going there at a rapid rate. So. That's a real difficulty, and I think that they have a difficulty not just with nationalists, but also with women. And is that because there is a sort of misogynist culture still that exists there? I don't know. Should I are, they going, are they going to further their careers? So, you know, is it? can you look at it the opposite way? Is it that the women are being chosen for these high-profile roles? And the in men South, and but they're not. Why, you know, are men mm. being promoted over the head of women in the PSNN? And they just feel they've got better opportunities don't start in the this South. now. women and yeah. here all day. <laughs> No, we can't quite smash the patriarchy in the yeah, short no, time. No, 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 unfortunately, we've sorted out South Armagh. I think that's that was good. With that sorted, the hot pursuit should go ahead. Isn't that right? I think it should. I, I think, think we just need be. to make sure that we have tight legislation so people aren't running around like cowboys right yeah. at either end of the border. So, Alison Morris, and I hope that you've started that book uh, You've got the title. Isn't that the hardest part, hot, they hot say? Pursuit, although I, I think so. that it could also be used as a, pursuit, a title for a film hard. that maybe would require an overrating written as well. I think you should copyright it here and now because you've just told everybody listening to Crime World your idea. But look, thank you very much for your time today. And, um, you know, the border is something that we will have to come back to again and again because it is... It's colourful. It is. It's it's fascinating. And, you know, there's times as a Belfast girl and a city girl that I travel down to speak to people around the border and I'm usually not shooed for the journey. You know, I'm usually standing up on high heels for some big country bloke looking at me as if I'm bunkers. But, um, yeah, when you see that, you can see that the policing and and just generally things that have progressed at a greater rate, I suppose, than they have in a lot of those rural border counties. And we won't use the phrase anymore we're saying it here here and now okay thanks Alison you've been listening to Crime World a podcast from sundayworld.com produced by Ian Mullaney and edited by me Nicola Talent if you like the podcast and love true crime why not download the free sundayworld.com app for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe.